A lot of the national spotlight is on Capitol Hill's public January 6th hearings, but a fair amount of legislative and budget work is getting done in the House and Senate, too. The House has made some initial progress on 2023 federal spending levels, and various pieces of legislation are expected to make their way through votes on the House and Senate floors in the week ahead. For a preview, we're joined by Lauren Duggan, Deputy News Director at Bloomberg Government. Let's uh, let's start with the budget process for fiscal 2023. There was a bit of movement last week in the House. Tell us where we stand on appropriations. Sure. So the movement last week was fairly procedural, and the House adopted a resolution called a deeming resolution. And what this does is allow appropriators to get their work underway. The House, at least Democrats, said that they would move forward with a $1.6 trillion top line for the next fiscal year that begins October 1st. They didn't get into any details about how to split that up on defense or non-defense, but basically that top line number is handed to the Appropriations Committee so they can begin their work. And that's exactly what they're doing this week with six subcommittee markups planned over two days, kicking off a three-week process to try to get all of those bills through the full committee and the subcommittee so that they would be available for floor action as soon as July, uh, possibly. So a lot of movement happening in the next few weeks on these spending bills, which they're they're going to represent really the House Democratic position on these questions. Um, there have been talks over time between the House and the Senate, Republicans and Democrats trying to come to a, a mutually agreeable top line figure for defense and non-defense. That would have made it a starting point a little more you know, agreed upon. But at the very least, House Democrats are going to get this process going um, and we'll see where it leads from there. So it doesn't really give us a lot of hope that there will be a, a full up spending bill by the end of this fiscal year, because that's pretty much what happened last year, wasn't it? There A fair amount of movement in the House early on the Senate appropriations committees or subcommittees didn't really get a whole lot of stuff done before the start of this fiscal year, and that led us into a very long CR. That's correct. So um, the dynamic here is kind of similar to last year, and the lack of a agreement between Republicans and Democrats in the two chambers left us with CRs until about mid-March, and it took them that long to reach that agreement, write the bills, pass them into law, and, and basically get the funding for the full year enacted as it was by mid-March. Richard Shelby, who's the top Republican on the Senate Appropriations Committee, was already talking to reporters on the Hill last week about a continuing resolution being necessary to fund the government. Um, that, you know, our Jack Fitzpatrick, who's been taking a look at this and waiting for that top line figure and all the work that's happening this week, um, heard that from him. And so, you know, if they're already talking about that in June, um, it seems fairly likely that that might be where we head. Now, there is pressure among appropriators to try to wrap this up during the calendar year, at least. And one factor behind that is that Patrick Leahy, who's the Senate chairman, and Richard Shelby, who's the top Republican, they're both retiring. And I think they would like to wrap up this process, um, for one thing, to get it done so it's not hanging over whoever's running the committee next year. But also, there's earmarks in there, or there could be earmarks in there, and they'd love to be able to get more of those. Richard Shelby was one of the top recipients in the fiscal 22 bills. He's looking for that again in fiscal 2023. So um, I think that's one thing that Augur Store is doing something in the calendar year even if you don't get it done by October 1st and with members kind of heading out the door then for the elections as well. Got it. Okay. And also some movement on the sort of only remaining must-pass piece of legislative uh, measure on the legislative front, which would be the National Defense Authorization Act. Bring us up to speed on where the NDAA stands. Sure. We've seen some action in both chambers. This week, it shifts to the Senate. Last week, the House Armed Services Committee, its seven subcommittees, each marked up their individual portion to forward that up to the full committee. This week, we're going to have a similar process in the Senate where subcommittees will meet Monday and Tuesday. 
send their work to the full committee, which will work Wednesday, Thursday, and maybe even into Friday uh, to try to wrap that bill up at the committee level. Most of what the Senate does is behind closed doors, so we won't necessarily see the final product until they're done. Maybe there will be some discussions or something like that, but we'll be waiting toward the end of the week for them to unveil what they um, are going to put forward as their vision of this. And then the House will be coming back next week. The House committee will be coming back next week to mark up its version. So by the, you know, by the end of two weeks from now, we should have two versions in hands of the defense authorization bill. One of the big questions there, as with appropriations, is how much to spend on defense. The Biden administration came in with a number that many Republicans feel is too low, especially in light of all that's being talked about with inflation, because the buying power of a dollar goes down, that makes it harder to um, plan for defense budgeting and things like that. And even, um, I think there will be pressure to put more money in there to have a pay raise for troops to make sure that their pay raise is keeping pace with inflation. So I'd expect we'd hear a lot about inflation, troop payments, um, and things like that, as we also just see debate on weapon systems and contracting policy and everything else that goes into that massive bill that they do make a point of passing every year. And I gather uh, the House is scheduled to consider at least a few pieces of legislation on the floor this week. What's Bloomberg government watching there? Well, a couple things. There's going to be a financial services package looking at getting banking regulators and others to do more about diversity and inclusion in the banking system, um, opening up some opportunity for credit unions to expand the areas they serve, collecting more demographic information, for example, um, getting banks to on a voluntary basis collect um, sexual orientation and gender identity information. So that's one of the bills that's moving there. They're also looking at a package of bills from both the Agriculture and the Energy and Commerce Committee dealing with food and fuel prices. Um, Again, with inflation, very much a theme that they're trying to address. And then there's a wildlife bill that's coming up. So those are some of the big ones. One of the things that's been pulled out of the larger debate on what to do about competition with China is an ocean shipping law overhaul. There's been a couple of versions passed by the House and the Senate. The House has decided to take what the Senate has sent over and go ahead and clear that for President Biden, who said he'd sign it. So that will be a big win this week for folks who have wanted to see some of the ways that ocean shipping is regulated to be changed. So that's one of the big things that will be kind of over the finish line, if you will, provided it gets enough votes when it hits the House floor. And it seems likely it will. And then before we let you go, I want to mention one big piece of legislation that that almost is certainly headed to President Biden's desk, which is the PACE Act dealing with um, toxic exposure to veterans. Does that look like it's a pretty sure thing on the Senate floor this week? There seems to be agreement here. The The disagreement so far has been more over the process of debating it than the policy. There's wide agreement in both chambers to do something about veterans exposed to toxic burn pits while serving overseas and dealing with some other toxic exposures, even going back to Vietnam era um, Agent Orange exposure. So there, there may be some procedural steps that have to be taken, but what looks likely is at some point very soon we'll see the Senate pass that bill, send it back over to the House, which had passed a version earlier, but seems willing to accept what the Senate's sending over. So that might be another thing over the finish line. It just may take a little longer to run through all the steps they have to get through. But that's that will be a big win for people who have been seeking that, including, you know, John Stewart and others who have made a public push to get that legislation enacted. All right. Lauren Duggan from Bloomberg Government. Thanks, as always, for bringing us up to speed, Lauren. My pleasure. Thank you. And you can find this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hello, I'm WIPA CEO Shane Canfield, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Lessons in Leadership. I'm honored to be joined by Angie Bailey, founder and CEO of Ananda Life. Angie has a remarkable career in public service, beginning as a GS2 clerk typist with the Social Security Administration, 
And over the next 40 years, Angie steadily worked her way up through the government, ultimately becoming the chief human capital officer at the Department of Homeland Security. She's been recognized with presidential rank awards by two administrations for leadership, innovation, dedication, and commitment to the country. Angie, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Shane. What a pleasure to be here. Angie, you've made quite a name for yourself as a leader in the federal workforce. Who was the first person you remember looking up to as a leader and what about them inspired you? You I often think about this because, you know, sometimes we think of the people that we look up to the most as being somebody that throughout our career has, you know, been at the highest levels and all. But, you know, I've got to go back to honestly, whenever I was 10 years old, And uh, I remember I really wanted to play Little League Baseball on a boys team. I was the only girl. And interestingly, it was the women who would keep saying to me that, no, I couldn't play. And then one day, whenever I was there to sign up yet again, uh, there was this guy, his name was Delbert Beiser. And uh, I remember he had like red hair and he had a wad of tobacco in his mouth and greasy overhauls and everything. And he said, you know, I'll take her, I'll take her on my team. And, you know, just looking back on that, there's so many leadership lessons and things that I just really admire about him. And actually, I thought about throughout my entire career, he took a chance on somebody he didn't know. He um, put aside whatever conscious or unconscious biases that he might have had about having a girl on a team. He treated me the same, Uh, whether you know, if I wasn't performing, I got benched just like the boys. I got no special treatment. And, and, and he was just really honest with me and he just included me in everything. And so looking back on it, you know, really it was Delbert Beiser, our local mechanic in our little small village that was, I think, my inspiration for going on to, I hope, become the leader, um, you know, that, that I wanted to be. I'd say half of the guests on this podcast have had similar stories where they reach back to either childhood or young adulthood. And I, and I think as leaders, it's really incumbent upon us to keep that in mind, that, that what we say and do, admit, especially in the younger ages, really can have a lifelong impact. How would you describe your leadership style? And, and how has that developed over time? I would say that the one word that describes my leadership style is that I care. Um, I guess that's more than one word, but I care. Uh, I, I've always cared about the mission. I've always cared about the people. I've always cared, you know, about making sure that that they had what they needed or that they were developing the way, uh, you know, that they aspired to develop. And I tried to take this approach of not treating people the way I wanted to be treated, but instead treat people the way they wanted they want to be treated. And I think that that really kind of developed over my career. You know, I started out just like most leaders do where it's very results driven. It's all about the bottom line. You need to make sure that you get everything accomplished because, you know, that's what everybody's looking for, the goals, the metrics, et cetera. But I think as you mature and you go along, you start to, to your point, you draw back on those early childhood days or early adult young, you know, whenever you're a young adult and you say, you know, I think that there's a little bit more to this than just the bottom line. And so over time, I really began to, I I think, see a much bigger picture and the entire ecosystem, if you will, and how the people themselves fit into all of this. And that ultimately, at the end of the day, it was all about the people. And so, I, you know, I think my my maturity allowed me to then shift and 
focus more on the people than than so much on results and bottom line. You've been recognized with two presidential rank awards, two different administrations. You founded your own company. Tell us a little bit more about your background from the beginning and, and how did that lead you to where you are today? Well, you know, it's kind of interesting, like you said, that I started out as a GS2, a Social Security Administration. I mean, what I really wanted to be was a criminal prosecuting attorney. It's, that's That was absolutely my dream. I sometimes joke and say what I really wanted to be was a mafia don, but that wasn't going to work out. So, you know, had to be a criminal prosecuting attorney. But, you know, I had to get a job to pay for college. I, you know, it wasn't in the cards that I was going to be able to go to college without a job. So I applied at the Social Security Administration, or I'm sorry, at the unemployment office. And lo and behold, I got a job at Social Security. I didn't even know it was federal, to be honest. Uh, From there, I went to the Department of Defense. And I found this, this career field called labor and employee relations. And honestly, it was as close as I was going to get to being a criminal prosecuting attorney. I didn't go on to be a a criminal prosecuting attorney, but I went on courtesy of Department of Defense to get both my bachelor's and my master's in leadership, because the whole study of leadership, I just find incredibly fascinating, Um, you know, from historical to current, current times, I just, it's just something that's just really fascinated me. And so I just, I would say I'm a lifelong learner of leadership. And then I would say some of the other things that got me maybe where I am today is I never really said no to anything. If people asked me to take on a new challenge, even if I wasn't sure I was going to be successful at it, I would say, you know what, not sure this is going to work out, but more than happy to give it a try. And it always worked out. But I think giving things a try and just not saying no to opportunities is what really led from one position to the next. I feel like I was always rewarded for just stepping in or stepping up and taking on the challenges that sometimes no one else wanted to do. Angie, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Shane. It's such a pleasure. I I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity. Thank you. This has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm CEO of WEPA, Shane Canfield. Looking forward to talking to you next time. (coughs) Cough and cold season is here. Introducing Ricola Max Throat Care, Ricola's most powerful drop yet. It's the best of Swiss nature wrapped around a powerful liquid menthol center for maximum relief from your worst cough and sore throat. Maximum nature for maximum relief. Try the new Ricola Max now, available in the cold and cough aisle. Ricola. It's in our nature. Hey, hon, what you doing with your fun? Do flowers have best friends? I don't know. Hey, look. Whoa. Some answers can only be found in nature. Discover the unsearchable. Visit discovertheforest.org to find a trail near you. Brought to you by the United States Forest Service and the Ad Council.